Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. We're back for another episode of Tennis Channel Inside In, the podcast that covers the game you know and love so well. Talking all things tennis, I'm your host, Mitch Michaels, from the Santa Monica Studios. Reminding you that this podcast is available on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, as well as all of your podcast platforms. I've got a couple of heavy hitters on this week's show. We are into the month of February with a lot of the game storylines to break down, and I'm joined by Mark Petchy, veteran broadcaster, former player and coach as well. We dive into all things from Tommy Paul winning the Dallas Open, the coaching carousel starting early with Holger Runa and Jessica Pagula, Naomi Osaka looking great on the road to her comeback, as well as all the storylines in the game of tennis, including the return to the court this week of Yannick Sinner after his first Grand Slam title in Australia. We'll have breaking down the game with Mark Petchy. And then for the first time on this show, a veteran broadcaster and author who's profiled some of the game's greats, it's Chris Bowers. Bowers wrote the definitive biography of Roger Federer, which is now available in an audiobook form. He also profiled Novak Djokovic. He hosts the Tennis Worthy podcast presented by the International Tennis Hall of Fame. We discuss how he has enjoyed getting to interview the game's greats, what it was like, what he learned from the books profiling Djokovic and Federer, his love affair with tennis, all that and more with Chris Bowers, who's been in the game of tennis for several decades. He has some thoughts on where the game is, its history, why we have to respect the traditions of the sport, and where the game is going. A lot of great stuff with Chris Bowers. First up, it's Mark Petchy. This is Tennis Channel Inside In, and the podcast starts right now. All right, we're back here on Tennis Channel Inside In, into the week of February. Mitch Michaels from the Santa Monica Studios. Mark Petchy back on the show in person. Got the camera set up. It's Valentine's Day. We're feeling the love. Thanks Feel- for coming to the show. Thanks, yeah. Feeling the love from back home. My <laughs> wife's calling me all the time, obviously missing me terribly. Yeah. <laughs> hey, there's there's tennis to, there, there, you know, duty calls. This calendar doesn't there's stop always on love holidays. tennis every day, Mitch. Yeah, yeah. Some people are feeling it more than others. Uh, I got to ask you first, because you're coming back from, you know, you've been in the studio for a little bit. Yeah. Coming back from the Australian run. How was it again, calling those matches on site again? You're back in the groove there. And this Australia felt like it was a special one. We saw some greatness, maybe a little bit of a new superstar change yep. of the guard emerged. And on the women's side, a, a back-to-back champion. So how was it down in Melbourne? Yeah, Melbourne was amazing. Um, I tell you, the thing about the, the tournament down there, that gives you so much sort of hope for the sport is just how popular it was. Uh, a million fans coming through the gates over the 15 days. I actually have to say I'm a convert to the Sunday start. Mm-hmm. I think all slams should go to it. I think it's a it's the right thing to do. But the quality of tennis was was phenomenal. Um, you know, Yannick to break through to pick up his first one was the big story. But in terms of actually being there again, it's uh, yeah, tennis is in a great spot right now. I'm still just so impressed with these athletes and their ability to play such high-level tennis out of the gate. There's no other sport like this where, in a lot of ways, but one being there's a major two weeks into the start of the season. So you have to bring it or you're not going to be there very long. Yeah, and obviously the, sh- the, the off-season just feels so short now. It feels mm-hmm. as though kind of basically you got maybe two weeks to get sort of some downtime and then you're back up at it with your fitness and then you've got your tennis. And if you want to make any big changes, you got to get straight back in the lab. So, Mitch, you're right. It's uh, it, it, it's tough to gauge. And I think that's what's yeah. so impressive about Yannick so quickly is being able to do that mm-hmm. at the start of the season. 
A lot to recap from this past week, and we'll look ahead to where we are on the tennis calendar. But first things first, Dallas Open. Listen to your call of that match with Jimmy Arias. Tommy Paul gets it done, gets a title, a home title. Does it by beating Marcos Garon and Ben Shelton in the semis. This was a nice bounce back for him. I know Australia didn't end the way he wanted it to, but he's up to 14 now in the rankings. And this was a good result that I feel like he needed. He went out and got yeah, he did need it. And I'm so happy for Brad uh, Stein, his coach, and for Tommy. You know, two of the great guys out there in the tour, and you want good things to happen to good people. I thought the quality, Mitch, of the final with Marcus, credit to Marcus, mm. I thought he was awesome in Dallas. Um, you know, it was probably some of the best tennis I've seen alongside with mm -hmm. Australia. Honestly, that final will go down this year as being one of the highest qualities in terms of the rallies, the movement. They're not two servers that are yeah. just going to take the racket out of hand. But credit to Tommy, having lost those two match points against Ketsmanovic, trying to back mm -hmm. up a semi to do so well in his first tournament back in Dallas was impressive. It certainly was. My note on Marcos is, I guess, 30 is a new 20 across the board, right? Because yeah. he's not, I mean, it was credit to him. He's playing some of the best, maybe the best tennis of his life. And yeah, we're seeing this time and time again, like 30 is where the, I mean, Manorino is another case, but you know, they're playing their best into their 30s now. Yeah, I think for Marcus as well, look, the hip surgery is obviously one thing, but mentally to be the top recruit in the country going to UCLA, and then having to take so long to break into the world's top 100, Mitch, mm -hmm. August 2020, to then mm -hmm. take another two years to break into the world's top 50, as it did. You know, for Marcus, that perseverance, that mm -hmm. not losing the desire, not losing the belief, yeah. is a huge credit to him. He's one of the great feel-good stories out there. You, you pull for mm -hmm. the guy every time he plays. I know you're not, you know, avoiding lists at times. You like to rank it, maybe. Would you put Tommy Paul as like a top five athlete in tennis, or is that, am I in the range, right? No, we love a ranking. Yeah. We love, yeah. what, we love <laughs> everyone loves yeah. a one to five. Everyone yeah. loves, everyone loves uh, you know, dumping on you when you get it wrong, exactly. or, or they don't agree with you. Exactly. But everyone's triggered, so let's go for it. Um, I do think Tommy Paul is in the top five. I do think the way that he plays, uh, his movement out there on the court is definitely top five in terms of the way he can can produce his shots, and how I am good with a full running that was that was insane. The one was probably the shot of the year so far. I know there's a lot of time, but yeah, he's to be able to get to the ball first yeah. of all and then put the pace on it. I think that's a reason why styles make fights. It's like boxing. He gives Alcaraz more trouble than others because there's very few people that can match athleticism with him. Yeah, you want litmus tests. There's your litmus <laughs> yeah. test for how good a mover is Tommy yeah. Paul. The fact that he makes Alcaraz's life as difficult that he, as he does on a, on a hard court is, is a tribute to the way that Tommy moves. He's awesome. So good for him on that result. The American rankings, 14, 15, 16, are Paul, Tiafo, Shelton. In that order now, I got to I gotta bring it up because yep. Tiafo struggled. And this is, you know, five and nine since that U.S. Open match. I know there's Davis Cup matches in there, but he loses that match to Marcos. And another result, another poor result for him, given the standard first round Australia. What's gone wrong for him and how can he fix it? Yeah, listen, confidence is key ingredient yeah. for everyone. <laughs> uh, it's easy yeah. to sit there when things are going well. You can, uh, you could even have me as your coach and you can still <laughs> win tennis matches, yeah. Mitch. But, you know, when, yeah. you, when you don't have the confidence, then you're obviously looking for guidance. Uh, mm -hmm. Not having Wayne on his back going through a tough period, I think, isn't a great thing for him. I think he will find it a little bit tricky with a new coach. Mm -hmm. That, that, that joining of a new coach usually comes at a fairly sort of big right. inflection point in a player's career. And at the moment, they're struggling to find and gauge the right kind of solution to the problems. Now, he's, he's, he's hit a bit of a buffer here, and I'm not sure how quickly he'll get out of it. And there is a unique pressure to tennis that I don't think most people realize with defending points and defending a result. So he's going to feel that Indian Wells, the clay court event to a lesser extent, 
Ben Grass when he won his grass court title. But that's the other pressure to this is that he's got some big tournaments he has to have to maintain his ranking. Yeah, and also when you go away from a coach that's done a great job with you, let's not forget Wayne got him up yeah. into you know the the top ten and, mm-hmm. and all of those things. You have a pressure to deliver. Mm-hmm. You have a pressure to to have a, a reason why you that relationship didn't yeah. work. So there's an awful lot going on in mm-hmm. you know in Francis's world at the moment, um, inside the rectangle and outside mm-hmm. that's making it tough for him. The lesson in all this is, and you can even get to the women's, which we want in a second. Naomi yep. Osaka's look good, but the train doesn't stop. You're back. You're looking good. Okay. Th- these players are getting better too. Yep. You know, So there's never going to be that down period. I do think we give more rope to the younger players who are still figuring it out, which we've seen. And I'd put Ben Shelton in that category. I don't know for a fact that he was 100% or not. There's you know the tape and whatnot, but he's gotten to a patch where... Guys have studied him. He's going to have to make tactical adjustments. I don't think we doubt that he will, but, you know, we saw evidence Tommy Paul, a guy who wanted to get that win back. That was the other thing, a highly motivated Paul to get some revenge out there. Yeah, and also, like, to stay there, you make a great point. Like, a lot of the time when you make that burst and you get the breakthrough, you actually, most players drop back. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he's, he's for, for most people, that's the norm. And trying to be against, flow against that tide is not always easy. So I think from... From Francis's point of view, um, he's just he, he'll figure it out. He's too good a player. He wants it too much, I believe. He's mm. just at the moment trying to trying to find those solutions. Margins are super slim. You know, there's opportunities galore, but there's also pressure across the board. Having said that, switching gears now to another tournament. This this storyline in France in Marseille, big match, Hugo and Bear, five for five in ATP finals. I was looking at the people he beat. He beat Dimitrov Sunday, but yep. there's wins over Rublev and Demonauer in there. So this isn't some fluke thing. Umber did it again. He beat another very good player playing his game. Yeah, and there's another classic case of what we were just talking about. Umber got himself up to 25 in the world back in 2021, dropped outside the world's top 150 by the sort of mm-hmm. middle of the next year, and then he's he's he slowly managed mm-hmm. to obviously get himself back up into side the world's top 20 this week so you know it, it, it's not easy no matter how <laughs> yeah. great you are it's it's not easy we look at the guys at the top Mitch you know we look at yeah. Novak and you look at Rafa and you look at Roger right. and you kind of measure everybody else's <laughs> career which are always going to look suboptimal yeah. in that situation so you know Ugo's Ugo's figured it out he, he, he's got an amazing game he, t- he, he is so super aggressive mm-hmm. that when he plays like that in conditions like that you can see how good he is the match against Hubie I believe it was in Australia yeah. was great like yeah. that took a lot for Hubie to win that match and yeah his game just to make a point you can expand is I love the the short back swings on some of his ground strokes he's not afraid to get to net he's very bold out there too which I don't want to say wasn't the norm for some of these younger French players coming up but he's very well-rounded in how he plays and he doesn't, you know, he doesn't play timid in big moments. I think that's why five and zero in the finals. Yeah, when he's, you're right. He steps up and he and he and it's all on the line. He's he's produced his best tennis, and he is. And because of that as well, he's got mid-match strategy shifts, mm-hmm. and not everybody has that. Not everybody has those gear mm-hmm. shifts in a match that Umber has. But that also takes time for somebody like him to work out throughout mm-hmm. the course. Of, so he gets the wins in 2021 yeah. through natural talent. Yeah. Then you have to morph that natural talent into skill and strategy. Yeah. You know, a little less flamboyant, <laughs> you know, and always comes with more criticism because right. people have based their analysis of you on talent. And now when he's got what he has, he's a formidable player. On a, you know, that's funny you say that because on a larger, much larger, the yeah. biggest stakes in the game, that sounded a lot like what people are talking about Alcaraz right now. Yeah, that the talent is unworldly. We know we're talking about two. You're playing the very best players in the world who are studying you and trying to beat you. But maybe there could be, if you see it that way, some tactical adjustments made at times. 
I mean, I know I'm not uh, saying he's done. I don't wanna, No, you're not saying he's do done. It. I know. No, no, no. I'm not putting you and, yeah. and no one's saying it, yeah. but like I mean, what was that? His 13th major or something. Yeah, no, and he's I know. already won two of them and everyone's yeah. already coming <laughs> crashing down and saying like he needs to yeah. do this. It's like once mm -hmm. again, you know, we, we live in an unnatural time because we've had yeah. these three players that have won 20 plus majors and, you know, they have made, you know, sport, yeah. sporting immortality like normal. Yeah. So everybody else that's coming in their shadow mm -hmm. is getting judged on this ridiculous benchmark that mm -hmm. they're never going to hit. Do I think Carlos is going to win 20 grand slams? I don't. <laughs> I think... I, I don't, but will he win double digits? I think he will. It's a pretty good career, right? Yeah, I mean, it was seven, eight. It's like Macro seven, Connors eight. These are Hall of Fame legends of the sport. Yeah, it is also a lot tougher when you get there first. You have that pressure, and guys like Sinner, Holger, do I'm going to disagree with you there. Okay, going to disagree with okay. you there. Uh, not, not, yeah. not, not. I, I, agree. I uh, There's, there's a part of that that I agree with, right? Because right. obviously, you become the lighthouse for the tour. That's, yeah, and I, that's what I'm more. But met. you've yes. won it, so he so knows he can win it. But yeah. his peers are looking at you like you're the target now. Yeah. So every match that you get from a guy like Sinner, or guy, to a lesser extent, the players coming up, that's their Super Bowl, to quote another popular sporting event. Yeah, it, you know? it is. But it's also what keeps them fresh. It's mm -hmm. what makes us as fans love the sport because yeah. you get an evolving strategy where something worked before. Look at the amount of times we saw Rafa change against Novak and Novak change yeah. against Rafa when it becomes a different surface. And that's what yeah. it is. Yeah, it's going to be challenging. But you know what? If everybody could do it, everybody <laughs> would be doing it. And I'd rather be in Carlos's yeah. shoes yeah. with a couple of majors under his belt than somebody you know that hasn't got it, mm -hmm. who's at the back end of their career in the epilogue of their career going, am I ever going to do it? So I, I like his situation personally. Before we go into this week, I did want to give credit to the women. I was watching TC live with you and Jimmy on yep. there and you talked about Rabakina winning another title and yep. is she the best server in the game? And there's a lot of agreement in there with what she's done. But the point that Jimmy made, and I think you agree with too, is that the rack, the match really is on her terms. Yes. And that's such a, and you can speak to it, such an underrated thing to have. She always has the hammer in her matches, win or lose. And, and and Mitch, we we live in a world now driven <laughs> yeah. by data, yeah. driven by analysis. Mm -hmm. This is the key to everybody's like yeah. world. This is going to unlock yeah. your success. Is is get your data, which I'm a big believer in. As you know, if you've mm -hmm. listened to my commentary, mm -hmm. I love trying to yeah. explain what's going on out there. Right. At the same time, as a coach, I love the fact that if you can make your game so good like Rabakina's <laughs> yeah. that you don't have to worry about 95% of the rest of the tour because on you, you're better than them. That makes the game a whole lot easier. You yeah. don't have to dig too deep. She knows what she does. She knows how good she can be. There's, yeah, you can get lost in the minutia of the data. And a lot of players kind of, you can see it happening where they, oh, I want to try this. I'm not sure. And when they're losing, yeah. you, I can guarantee you now, when players are losing, they're digging into the data analysis mm -hmm. and they, they eventually just get lost in it. When they're winning, it's all instinct. It's all the way that they play and they don't have to think so much. So I'm a big fan mm -hmm. of her game because she actually, her, her groundies are, are some of the best out yeah. there. It gets lost behind the serve. We're seduced <laughs> by the serve. But don't don't be don't sleep yeah. on the groundies. They're some of the best. Always seduced by serve. You got to yes. keep the Valentine's Day thing going. That's good. <laughs> and then the other the other champion too is Carolina Pliskova, which needs credit. I know Transylvania isn't the biggest tournament, but she's had to battle, missed some time, injuries, and has kept it going in in uh, Doha in Doha right now. So it's been kind of impressive to watch Pliskova, who's been number one in the world. We forget get back to this point. 
Yeah, well, the old class is, <laughs> class is permanent. It's coming through with Pliskova, isn't it? Yeah. And, yeah, she played great. Um, very tough journey, as, as everybody knows, from there to get there. The final being any longer includes she probably wouldn't even be mm-hmm. playing this week. Yeah. She's she's such a good player that she's got a, she's got a health. She feels good. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, she, she'll, she'll be in the mix by the end of the season. She might well be at mm-hmm. the WTO Tour final, mm. wherever they may be. Yeah. <laughs> Don't want to speculate. <laughs> yeah, let's not speculate. Where yeah. are they going to be? Yeah. Mm, let me think. Uh, <laughs> if you have a search engine, you might be able to figure it out. Yeah. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels, whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out. The Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Uh, more <laughs> with Mark Petchy here on Tennis Channel Inside In. I wanted to get your thoughts on some of the other news too, Mark, because I know you're not going to hold your tongue on this. and Maybe <laughs> just give some honest takes here, but the coaching moves that we saw. Yep. Jessica Pagula, David Witt, yep. and Wong's tenured partnership. Holger Runa moving on from Boris Becker. Very short run there. Um, how do you see each? I know partnerships end, things don't work out, but is there any read you have on either thoughts that you just have? Um, I, I guess that Jesse was already having some doubts at the back end of last year mm-hmm. because that kind of came out of the blue. Um, mm-hmm. I was chatting to David Witt in Adelaide, so yeah, I don't think any, I don't think anybody in tennis really mm-hmm. saw that coming apart from Jess, but she knows what's best for her career. Mm-hmm. I think people always need to remember it's never personal. You know, it's a mm-hmm. short career. She obviously feels as though she's perhaps underperformed at the back end of these tournaments. She's been Miss Consistency, mm-hmm. but obviously she wants to be Miss Champion. Yeah. And ultimately she's looking for some solution to get her there. The serve is obviously going to be the area that they've constantly worked on. That's where she's going to be like trying to mine for that goal. Right. Um, as for Holger, that's just bizarre. You know, I mean, it's, you know, to get those guys on board, uh, th- there's not enough time. I mean, Boris couldn't even travel to Australia for ve- for the, for known reasons. There's not enough time for you as a coach to really have an impact on a player's career. Some of the ideas that you have in the start of a career, mm-hmm. uh, start of a coaching sort of liaison, will die on the vine. You will have ideas that you think work and you try, but they actually don't work, and they could cause a bit more doubt. For for me. For me, I, I don't, I don't really understand. It certainly wasn't time. Let's be mm-hmm. honest; that was absolute. Yeah. You know, that was a myth. You know, yeah. whatever that mirage was that they said they didn't have the time. <laughs> yeah. The fact was, it 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 hasn't worked, and mm-hmm. and Holger needs to figure it out. Yeah, because as you can say, right, there are terms set when you come into a partnership. You outline a lot of this stuff well, the, the first thing you say is how how many how many weeks can you give me yeah and that's the first question that you ask yeah. you don't go like oh can you help me yeah sure i've got yeah. uh, i've got two days in uh, in july yeah you know it's like so that whole kind right of re- it was like wendell and murray a little bit too right because they figured out schedule and it yeah. wasn't going to be there the whole time yeah i it's weird circumstances there's obviously and, and look i think the other side of this too i know the society we live in and you mentioned it but Holger wants to be where Carlos and now Sinner are, and he's seen yep. these guys succeed, and there's pressure that he's feeling. Doesn't mean we're going to write him off at all, but I think he's feeling it to get to that Grand Slam champion level. Wimbledon of last year, we would have probably put him ahead of Sinner in the pecking order at that time, which is 
how this game works. Yeah, and you know, credit to uh, Simone and Darren for yeah. being able to guide that ship. And he he had some tougher times, as you say, but then picked it up in Canada last year, winning mm -hmm. uh, the Masters 1000 there, Yannick. And then he hasn't really looked mm -hmm. back from that particular point on. So, um, listen, everybody's journey is different. Mm -hmm. uh, we should be, you know, not as judgmental. But Holger needs some stability in that camp, and mm -hmm. he needs it soon because it isn't as complicated as he's making it. Mm -hmm. You know, he's a he's a great player already. You don't beat five top teners in a row to win a Masters 1000 yeah. without pretty much nailed on knowing what you're trying yeah. to do out there. <laughs> you can't overcomplicate yeah. this game. You feel like if you rein him in, because weirdly you don't have the questions in the back end of tournaments when he plays big players, you can beat them. Yeah. But rein it in, get that consistency, stability, and you'll unlock something. Totally. It's, uh, it's impressive to see. Also impressive, Mark, got to give props. Naomi Osaka's kind of put it together this week. Had the uh, walkover win against Serenko. That's uh, number 14 for Serenko and walkover win. But I digress. Osaka into a quarterfinal. I know the, the results weren't there early, but this has to be ahead of schedule for okay. herself. Okay. I, I, listen, I was in Australia. I was lucky enough yeah. to be there. Um, I didn't see a match live against Pushkover in Brisbane, but obviously lost the second set on a breaker, then mm -hmm. lost a tight one in the third. I saw her match live against Garcia. Garcia is one of those people that, you know, a bit like Maxine Cressy on the guy's side, it's a completely different rhythm. You just don't practice against that. You know, you, you've got to try to mm -hmm. find a person that can help you, like, deal with that ultra-aggressive return. Yeah. She played great, Garcia. I promise you, if she could put, far, like, six more matches back-to-back -back like, like that. that, she could have won the, the title. Mm -hmm. I thought people were f too quick to get down on Naomi after that loss. I thought people were like, oh, she's not going to be playing well till, you know, till Wimbledon. Well, I mean, they were already down on her on natural surfaces. So probably they <laughs> were thinking it was going to be the US Open. And I was like, no, she looked good. She yeah. just didn't have the time on the ball because Caroline played great. Mm -hmm. um, I'm delighted that she's bounced back so quickly to win those matches. She's in, she's in, good, she's in good shape. There, yeah, she's in good shape. It no, takes I don't time. mean that as a physical. I mean, she's right. in good shape hitting the ball right. physically, mentally. She looks happy. I mean, I think she's going to be a danger. I think the first thing we saw was how clean she was hitting the ball. And all the other stuff, right, timing, maybe getting in a little bit better physical shape. That will come with practice, with reps. We know she's a champion. She can get there. The landscape has changed. But as you said, she drew a top player. Like, she drew – that's a brutal first-round draw. In a major is Caroline Garcia. So. It, it was it was hot. I mean, Pushkiver then Garcia. <laughs> I, I swear, if she had got given a half yeah. decent draw in Australia, she could have been fourth round quarters. The way that I thought she was hitting the ball. Well, she's so a, yeah. you know, been wrong before. Don't get me wrong, but <laughs> yeah. and we'll never know. Yeah. But that was my sense when I walked away from that. I was very yeah. high on her on her standard. Well, she gets a chance for to go on a little mini revenge tour. Pushkiva again after yep. Garcia in this tournament. I have to ask your thoughts on Iga because she won today over Alexandrova. Yeah. She's up to 90 weeks now at number one, which is in a rare list, the 10th woman ever to do so. As far as this tournament goes, as far as this region of the world goes, she seems very comfortable with yeah. the conditions in the Middle East. Yeah, she doesn't lose too many games in this no. part of the world, does she? Yeah. I mean, let alone just trying to get a set off her here. It's mm -hmm. a bit like trying to get a set off Rafa on a clay court mm -hmm. at his absolute peak, uh, which lasted about 15 years. Yeah. It's the similar kind of story for Iga here. She absolutely loves it. She's able to find the short angles. Listen, I'm... I'm interested to see, and, I'll, and we'll only know at the back end of this year, whether the change to the serve has been uh, more productive than it was last year. She actually had good numbers behind her first serve last year. I'm, I'm of the opinion that it's looking a little predictable. It did, um, and I think you're 100% right. In Australia, there were clear tells. I mean, the clean winners off, I mean, there's certain players that are going to do yeah. that, but the numbers were all, okay, 
they were reading it better. That was in the data. Yeah, and it and I feel like the change has made it a little bit more mm-hmm. predictable about where she's probably going to serve, and therefore, you've got a question: Is it long term going to be something that she sticks with, or will will this be one of the iterations that we see in Eager Serve, and mm-hmm. it finally goes somewhere else, and it ends up being the serve that that, that helps her? Timing was weird, right? Because she finished so strong last yep. year. And that's where I get the long-term thing. We saw Tiger Woods change his golf swing. Totally. And then it helped long-term. But, yep. yeah, I mean, and part of it is, right, the tide is raising. Sablanca comes back, wins, you know, and Coco has a major now. Rabaka is looking good, so. Yeah, because the yeah. return game's <laughs> a joke. I mean, she's winning 50% of the return games. If she can obviously mm-hmm. add a little bit more in terms of service games one, she is going to make herself almost unplayable. The rationale mm-hmm. behind it yeah. is excellent. I'm not totally sure that the outcome isn't going to cause her more problems right. and consequences down the road. Did you have any, in a scale of no worry to a little <laughs> bit of worried with Coco's performance losing that first round, just one match? I only bring this up because yeah. the unforced air numbers were in the 40s, and that's not what any coach wants. <laughs> no, that's sort of my territory. That I, I can talk about that with uh, with, yeah. with deep deep yeah. data analysis. Listen, I. I am a little, yeah, I think that forehand side is going to get peppered. I mean, if you're, you know, the more time mm-hmm. she goes through, she's just going to have to, like, what, where it worked in the summer, where she could hit high balls down the line, and then, obviously, you would go cross-court to bring her mm-hmm. backhand into play. And because she's a phenomenal athlete, she's able to get away with, away with it. The serve, I think, looks nice. Roddick's obviously done a great job. Uh, I am. I think that forehand is going to come under so much scrutiny. It's going to be difficult for her to not think of it as a bit of an issue in mm-hmm. her mind, which is not what you want when you're between the lines. We all know where you stand with Coco as an yeah. athlete. So we got exactly. that. Yeah. We got that one before. Yeah. And, I, it, and, it, and, it, and it will never change. No, no. I, like, yeah. Okay, defend it. Yeah. I, uh, I also think in a weird way, Cindy Akiva, that matchup, like we all know that there are great players yep. at the top of the game, but how she played being an athlete, I don't want to use that pusher term too much, but it's almost like that's a tougher task for Coco than a bigger player that she could be the one defending because that match was a lot of Cindy Akiva, to her credit, getting every ball back, and then that led to the errors. Yeah, and I think that's going to be a really interesting sort of part of this year is mm-hmm. watching how people take on Coco <laughs> because mm-hmm. obviously if you're not hitting clean winners off the forehand side, which is always going to be, you should be your greatest mm-hmm. winner number count, Yeah, you're, and if you feel safe going to an opponent's forehand, there's going to be a lot of people out there suddenly going, well, I don't need to overplay. No. <laughs> you know, so, yeah. she, and she'll have to deal with that change of mentality, which is tough for a player, Mitch, right. because trying to tell your player, hey, go to the player's forehand. You're like, what, with nothing on it? Yeah, go with <laughs> nothing on it. Like, that just doesn't feel like a yeah. strategy that's going to work. But hey, you just stay in yeah. the point, you stay in the point. So it, it, it's, it's going to be an interesting evolution. Well, we got Iga in the quarterfinals against Victoria Azarenka, who beat Ostapenko. Ostapenko now 14-3 and three on the year. All yep. three losses to Azarenka. She loves Azarenka, <laughs> by the way. There's all this like n- nonsense yeah. at the handshake today yeah, with the, the racket, racket tap thing. But that's just the, the, the politics of the Ukraine war. Yeah. Um, she she's outwardly and openly said that Vika is one of her, <laughs> is a favorite player. So yeah. you know, everyone needs to again just like you know calm down. Right. I'm not worried about that. I'm more like wow. Like, yeah. Have you ever? I mean, did you have experience with certain players that's just like man, I could be having everyone. a good year. Like okay, everyone, yeah, everyone. Okay. <laughs> well. 
I had a good record against Paddy Rafter. I, w- I was three and zero against Paddy. So Rafter. you were you were the other side. So then, yeah. you always have somebody that you kind of like playing uh, for whatever reason. Um, but mm. listen, if I'd have been on the court more often with Paddy, I, I would have lost. Right. So you know, but yeah, yeah five and zero. Um, you know, mm. well, Umber's five and zero against Rusevori, right? He's mm. lost every time he's played the Finn. So matchup and styles are a big part of this sport. So weird because Ostapenko clearly playing the best tennis yeah. since twenty seventeen just can't beat Vika. Yeah. Well, I did want to wrap this up talking about what we have coming up on the men's site too. We got Alcaraz on the clay and Buenos Aires. We know it's a nice little appearance fee for him to go down there. I think we can say, but uh, him back on the court center plate today as well. So these two young guys playing, especially center in Rotterdam after that first life changing win gets by in straight sets. But do you think the pressure will continue to alleviate a little bit for him? Not really. I mean, he's the, the, yeah, the pressure's gone for Yannick. He's done, he's, he's done it. You know, he's, he's managed to get his maiden major. Uh, He comes into these sort of conditions. I mean, he is fully equipped to play well in, in Rotterdam. Biggest hitter combined off the, off, off each wing. Yeah. He's going to, he's, he's going to dominate. I mean, so yeah, I, I I mean, he's in, he's in good spot. (laughs) He's just like to see Alcaraz and Sinner in more draws together. We would. This is the part where it's like they're at a distance, but do you see, because looking at the rankings right now, and I talked to Paul Anacone about this last year where he said there's, you know, any given tournament it could break right. You have seven to however many contenders, but the real guys at the top. Is there, are we getting to a big four range? Because the top four have separated themselves ranking-wise. Well, they have. I think the, you need to go back to 2009 <laughs> yeah. to see the, the next time that there was somebody, and it was Novak at the time, yeah. that had more points than Yannick does um, in the big, as the last as of four. the big four, yeah. as in the four. Yeah. And then you've got the big drop-off. And then you've got a pretty big drop-off between 13 and 14. You've almost got three tiers at the moment in the men's game mm-hmm. that are, are pretty much at the moment secured. Uh, yes, mm. there's your answer. Because with Sinner, Medvedev proving, and he almost pulled it off. We were all watching Australia, like, is he going to pull this off uh, with the little energy he had? But Sinner elevating his game. We know about Djokovic and Alcaraz. It's going to be tough. Rublev at five, but it's, you know, these guys have put in the work, and you know it's cumulative. It's not just one big result. It's a year-round grind to get to where these guys are. Yeah, and a big shout-out to Daniel for that run at Australia and the final that he gave <laughs> us. I mean, absolute heartbreak. I mean, it's rare that you kind of commentate on a match and then you just have completely mixed emotions at the mm-hmm. end of it because you want to be <laughs> super happy for Yannick, but to, to lose two Aussie Open finals from two sets to love <laughs> up and also just completely gear shift your strategy, like completely uh, bombing groundies, standing up on the baseline, uh, you know, huge kudos to, to Daniel and, you know, hopefully there's another major around the corner for him. I think it's going to be fun to see. Uh, we'll see when we see Novak yep. Djokovic, Rafael Nadal again as well, trying to come back Indian Wells. We hope to see those guys. I want to let you go with this, Mark. Uh, I know you probably think, and I've seen some of the comments, but we can say guys like Andy Murray have the right to retire whenever they want to. <laughs> I don't want to pile on, but everyone, this is one of the few times I felt good. It's like, wow, the entire tennis community agrees on something. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, Andy, Andy is... Uh, has become an icon of the sport for so many reasons. Um, and he has become a beacon of hope to a lot of people, uh, especially coming from Dunblane and all of those, um, you know, the situation there. But for Andy, what I love about this situation is how much he loves doing something. How many people that are telling him to stop have ever loved what they have done with the passion that Andy does, that he's willing to do what he's doing and go through to try and get him hit some match wins for him. He knows in his heart of hearts that another major's out of the question, but he still loves his job that much that he's willing to do anything for it. He can retire whenever he wants. I hope he doesn't retire too soon. 
I hope he doesn't either. Um, we know the standards, right? That point you made is so perfect. A guy that's won as much knows what the standard is, knows where he's at, knows, can, can see the landscape better than everyone. But he just loves playing. It's as simple as that. And you know what? He's number 50 in the world. He would like to be higher. He isn't. He understands that. He's qualifying for these tournaments. It's not like, what do we, you know, it's, it's one thing. Like, yes, we remember them as their greats, but they have earned the right to play as long as they're still within that threshold and playing, and he's still there, so let him keep playing. Yeah, and also the people that are criticizing him and that are <laughs> sh- uh, telling him to stop have never done anything in their life as well as he's done what he's done in, in his life, and they don't understand what drives these elite athletes to do what they've done. The sacrifice, I remember practicing with Stefan Edberg three years after he, we, he lived in London at the time, and I would practice with him after he'd retired. Honestly, I don't know why he retired, <laughs> because he was still that good. He was still not yeah. losing sets to Tim Hemmen. He still played three times a week. Yeah. This this is this is a drug that runs in their vein, this sport. And they just and it's so difficult to give it up. And Andy will just he he it will go to the ends of the earth to to have another big run somewhere. Appreciate these greats and appreciate Mark Petchy for joining me on Tennis Channel Inside In. Always a pleasure. Love having you in the studio, following your matches uh, abroad that you're calling. You know, keep it going and keep throwing in those British phrases as well to keep us on our toes right. here. But I thanks again thanks for coming me. on the podcast. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks, man. All right, huge thanks again to Mark Petchy, one of my favorite people in the entire tennis industry to talk to. And you just have to love a commentator that speaks freely and uh, isn't afraid to share his opinions. You don't have to always agree with him, but we do respect the ability that he has to put himself out there. And uh, he's as knowledgeable as they come. So thanks again to Mark Petchy. Catch him on all the Tennis Channel airwaves this week and beyond. All right, now we're joined by, for the first time on this show, Chris Bowers, an author, a commentator, a citizen of the world. Bowers has written two biographies on Novak Djokovic and Roger Federer, respectively. He discusses what he learned from those two great champions, what it's like hosting Tennis Worthy, a podcast that is sponsored by the International Tennis Hall of Fame, why we should appreciate the tradition and history of the game. All that and more with Chris Bowers here now on Tennis Channel Inside It. All right, now joining us on Tennis Channel Inside In, happy to have this man on the show. He's been involved in the game of tennis for over 30 years now. The biographer of Roger Federer and and Novak Djokovic, that Federer book is available in an audio form. Uh, He's been a broadcaster. He's done it all, written books, written stories, and now hosts the Tennis Worthy Podcast, which is presented by the International Tennis Hall of Fame. A lot to get into with Chris Bowers. Chris, welcome to Tennis Channel Inside In. Excited to chat with you. Thanks, Mitch. There's a lot of people that I wanted to get, you know, a hold of, and you were one of them because I know how much you appreciate not just the current game, but the history of the sport. You've covered it. You've profiled Federer and Djokovic, two of the all-time greats in the sport. And, Chris, I always start with this question when guests come on for the first time. How did your journey in the world of tennis begin? What was it about the game from a youth that really captured your imagination and uh, you wanted to devote your life to it? Uh, inevitably, there's a little bit of good fortune. Um I lived in a street where 10 houses up the road from me, there was a tennis club. And so I frequently walked past the tennis courts and I saw people playing. Uh, I didn't know at that stage that my dad used to play. And in fact, that uh, um, he very nearly married a woman he'd met at a different tennis club. Um, But I saw that and at the age of 10, I asked if I could play. And uh, I mean, look, I was passionate about all sports. I, I, I think my first sporting passion was cricket. Um, I, I just love cricket. I quite understand the, the, 
the fact that most of the rest of the world doesn't get cricket. I, I wonder whether one has to be born with it to uh, to really understand it and to really um, connect with it. But cricket is only played in about seven or eight countries at the highest level around the world, whereas tennis is right around the world. So in my early 30s, when I was facing a, a sort of like an early midlife crisis and thought, what do I want to do with myself? I said, okay, throw myself the question, what would be my dream job? And my dream job would be going around the world reporting on tennis. And the next question was, well, what's stopping me? So basically I've been doing that, um, yeah, for the for the past 30 years. And uh, I've been playing it since I was 10, but, um, you know, I just I just have a passion for it, and I'm encouraged to see how many people live well into their 90s. So it's clearly a, yeah. a good sport for longevity. Yeah, it seems like it's that way. And and someone like yourself that played it covered it. I think there's something that I've heard other journalists say this that it's such a sport where you work on it, you work on parts of your game. There's a passion for the sport which you clearly have, but there's also ways to improve and better yourself through tennis. Would you think that's fair to say that tennis gives you that ability to kind of improve things and, you know, teach you lessons that go beyond the court? Absolutely. But for that very reason, I was a very, very slow convert to um, electronic line calling Mm. because tennis was uh, about lessons in life. And sometimes in life you get unlucky and you have to deal with something that's not fair. And, okay, you don't want a situation where, you have corrupt line umpires, but I don't believe them in many corrupt line umpires, maybe a couple in countries where there was perhaps a bit of political pressure, maybe in a team environment. But by and large, I think, you know, people sometimes make mistakes. And if you're on the um, wrong end of that, it is desperately unfair. But that is part of the lesson in life. So, yes, I do think tennis is um, is great for that. I love the way you often think your way through. I think it's underappreciated how much the top players frequently don't play their best tennis, but they are the best at finding solutions. That's the word that the, the term that Rafa uses yeah. a lot, uh, finding solutions. And, you know, for a while you can think, oh gosh, it's one of his favorite phrases, but actually it hits the nail on the head. It is about finding solutions, especially when you're playing somebody and you're not playing particularly well, but you just need to find a way of getting through to the, your next match a day or two days later. Uh, because otherwise, you you know, you're on the next plane right. out of wherever you happen to be. So, yes, I think there is a, a big lesson in life. I think, though, that one of my biggest roles is to keep that connection between the very highest level of tennis, which I report on, and the people who either don't play tennis at all or they play it in their public parks or they play it at their club. Because, you know, the athleticism at the very, very top of the game is is quite fantastic. But I'm very much in favor of not stuffing the commentary box full of ex-players. There's a role for the ex-player because they've been out there. But there's also a role for people who can connect with what I sometimes call the Saturday afternoon hacker. (laughs) Somebody who plays once, maybe twice a week, just has fun with it and enjoys watching on television. But they need to actually have that link. And that's why I think actually the, the role of the media person in tennis is to keep that link and therefore we mustn't get too hung up on the people who've played it at the very highest level much as they have mm-hmm. a fair bit to teach us yeah that's a very good point there's diversity in tennis it's such a global game there's so many different types of people that play there's so many type of fans that are interested in the game and people that play a role in covering it so 
I'm with you there. There's a role for the ex-player. There's a role for the media people. There's a role for people to bridge the gap like yourself. One of the gaps that you've bridged in your career, Chris, is the history of tennis. You've been a historian. You've talked and covered about things that I think the modern fan and you know certain generations don't really know. They're a little too young to understand. Why was it so important for you to understand and appreciate the game's history and then to bring that to the masses? Oh, I'm a great reductionist. I like to know why something is, you know, where's it come from? I mean, my degree at university was in history, history and languages. Um, I'm fascinated by, you know, what's happened. Can we learn anything? They sometimes say the only thing you can learn from history is that there's nothing to learn from history. <laughs> but actually, really interesting to know where something came from, because sometimes when we have a problem in, in any walk of life to trace it back to, well, what were we trying to do? Ah, okay, we were trying to do that. Ah, I see where we've gone off the rails. And sometimes that's valid in tennis. And it's a really good juncture this year because this is the 150th anniversary of the birth of the modern form of tennis. You know, tennis has been played throughout the centuries, but not in its current form. The current form dates from uh, Walter Wingfield patenting his boxes and publishing the rules of lawn tennis, as he called it, back in March 1874. And therefore, it's a really good time to sort of say, right, OK, how has this game developed? And in many ways, um, the, the really big surge in tennis came after 1968 when the amateur and professional circuits merged. Mm. And it's quite fantastic what's happened, but it's possible we need to go back one of the things I'd like to sort of uh, investigate, but with people who really understand the science of tennis, is if we'd stuck to wooden rackets or if we've allowed the the, the current uh, racket materials but stuck to the 27 by 9 inch uh, rackets, would tennis have been a little bit more varied? Because I do sometimes worry that it's too physical, it's too baseline dominated. Right. And for me, the tennis is the variety of it to see players who can slice and dice who can play a drop shot off a of a, a return of serve and i want to make sure that we don't lose that variety and sometimes we have to go back a couple of stages and say right do we need to go back to that point and say right let's re rethink the technology whether it's rackets whether it's strings whether it's surfaces or, or whatever so i think the history is important for understanding how you got to where you are and sometimes to unpick certain problems we have but I don't just say that for tennis. I say that for everything. Yeah, it's a, you know, you said a lot there. And I, I wanted to get into the one side of thing about the changes in the game in terms of technology and variety. I remember hearing, you brought him up earlier, Rafael Nadal say recently that it's, you know, it's a lot of players playing the exact same style. The game is very physical. And looking at, I guess, Chris, changes in history with technology, with surfaces, with that playing style you mentioned. Does it seem like a completely different game? And is there other aspects of tennis you'd wish to kind of maybe revert to the way it was? I don't want to say back to the glory days, but you know, you have an expert knowledge that most people don't in the history of the game. So what are some changes that you've liked and maybe that you haven't liked about the modern game of tennis? Well, I think the glory days are, we're just at the end of the glory days. I think the best <laughs> era in tennis was about 2005 to 2022. One, 2022, okay. the Federal Nadal-Djokovic era, as well as Serena, Venus, Williams, uh, and um, I also think Moresmo and Enna mm. uh, have a part mm. in that as well. That, to me, was the most wonderful era in tennis. There's a, an old saying that says champions would have been champions in any era. 
I don't think that is necessarily the case in tennis. I mean, the likes of Leva and Nastasi, I think, would struggle in today's tennis simply because they played with such touch and delicacy and strategy. Rosewall's backhand was legendary in its day. I think it would be absolutely pummeled in today's tennis. Now, OK, you could say, well, Rosewall would play with different rackets. He might have had different uh, coaching. He would probably have been taught a two-handed backhand. And given that he was ambidextrous, that might have been a, a terrific shot that he would have had. But, you know, I don't necessarily think that somebody who grew to be five foot seven, one meter seventy, would have been able to hang in with today's Right. champions in yeah. today's top 50 players so that's one of the reasons why i say we might need to revisit technology at some stage to make sure that you know the volleyers have a chance that you can play a sliced approach shot down the line and still have a chance of winning the point rather than feel that if the opponent gets a racket on the ball they're likely to send it past you for a winner i've talked to Stuart miller the um, head of science and technology at the international tennis federation who's responsible for the laboratory that they have there in an old converted squash court at itf headquarters in london and he said you know actually you can hit the same shots with a 27 by 9 wooden racket as the players hit today um if that's the case then maybe i'm barking up the wrong tree but i'm, I'm not entirely sure that's the case but for me it's the end product and i do worry that if we're not fortunate to have somebody like a, I don't know, a Shapovalov or a Musetti or a Kyrgios or a, maybe even a Sebi Korda coming through to the top. The top five or six in the next, yeah, five to 10 years could be all a little bit one dimensional. Mm -hmm. And that worries me for the attractiveness of the future of tennis. But we've had that concern before, and there's always been somebody with great variety who seems to make it. Um, so may maybe my fears are unfounded. Is there anybody that comes, anybody to that comes to mind in terms of from the games past that you think is underrated that more young people, this is kind of a young audience show, but that younger people should appreciate somebody that doesn't get there just to. Um, I think Nastasi is unappreciated. Problem with Nastasi was that he was, he was one of the bad boys of his era. He and uh, Jimmy Connors used to get on very well. Uh, Connors was the street fighter. Connors was somebody who just loved to leave everything out there. Um, but he wasn't an exciting tennis player the way someone like Nastasi was. Nastasi was almost like the Federer of his day. Um, but you see, I would say that the person I'm most excited about now is Alcaraz. And I say that, it's easy to say that now because his trajectory is slightly on the down at the moment. He may well come up. He may well win Roland Garros this year. But... At the moment, he's slightly on the down, doesn't seem to have played too much. I think partly because he got to the top artificially early because Djokovic wasn't allowed to play mm. uh, two of the four majors and uh, four of the eight Masters 1000s in 2022 because of his vaccine status. So I think Alcaraz was slightly thrust into the limelight a little too early, but he is that kind of exciting player that we need. And if we were to have in three years time, a top 10 that included Alcaraz, I suspect Djokovic will have gone up by then. Um, Kyrgios, Shapovalov, Korda, Musetti, that to me would be exciting. I, I have a slight fear that there will be players. I mean, I'll be honest with you, I found that a lot of the Djokovic Murray 
Grand Slam finals were not massively interesting because they're a bit like chess matches. Styles, yeah. They, they were cancelling each other out. And that's, for me, tennis lives off a contrast in styles. And to have a contrast in styles, you need players who play tennis in different ways. And I worry that the increased physicality and the te the technology means that we are getting to a point where everyone's playing the same way. More with Chris Bowers here on Tennis Channel Inside In, the biographer, author, and commentator in the tennis world has done so much for the game. Mentioned the author side of things before the Federer and Djokovic book. I believe, Chris, your first book was The Book of Tennis, A Fan's Guide in 2002. Um, if that is correct, and I, I think it is, and there's a lot of books that came after that, obviously, Federer and Djokovic, but how did the process go writing your first book and what intrigued you about that and you know, putting pen to paper and putting in that long, long haul and becoming a published author? Yeah, it was something I always wanted because my parents had a whole load of books. So my, I grew up in a house with masses of books, and I used to look at the spines of them and think, "Oh, I wonder if one day I will have my name on the spine of a book." So, yes, it was a, it was almost like a pilgrimage, and it came through a very, very unusual route. If um, if you're aware of uh, music, there was uh, a musical version of H.G. Wells' is The War of the Worlds, okay. um, composed by uh, a father and son combination of uh, Jerry and Jeff Wayne. Um, Jeff Wayne is still alive um, and he is a tennis nut. And he said, he came to me and he said, look, I've done an awful lot of recording. Um, I would really like to do a book about tennis. Anyone watching tennis on television, they will hear the commentators and they'll, the commentators will inevitably say things and they'll say, well, what is what a commentator meant when he said that or when she said that? And I want them to have a book by the television that tells them everything they need to know, that fills in all the gaps. And I, my first question was, well, how many volumes are we going to have of that? And he said, no, 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 it doesn't need to be one book, but it needs to fill in the gaps. A bit of history, a bit of the great arenas, a bit of the alphabet soup. You know, what is the ATP? What is the WTA? What is the ITF? Where have they all come from? What's the governance of tennis? You know, who are the great players of tennis? Can, can we have our little hall of fame in there? So it was it was almost like I, could, I envisaged this television screen and alongside it, a little book um, that any player, uh, any watcher of tennis could just reach for when a commentator said something that they didn't quite get and the answer would be in there. And, you know, I don't know whether that's how people have read it, but I've had all sorts of very... Um, illustrious people asking me to sign their copy so i know it's been widely read yeah hey, i'm just thinking what a great idea that is and how it could be used for sports over here like american football i'm a big ice hockey fan too and i think that's that's necessary for a lot of ways but it, it really did spark something i wonder if these days um people would just reach for their smartphone but then yeah. they need to have that source of information on the smartphone rather, rather than just put it into a search engine so yeah. maybe there is scope for it in a modern digital form you know, one of the books that you wrote, Chris, and I was looking at it, was the Davis Cup book, the year Croatia won it. And it just talked about the moment for Croatian tennis and that country, but also made me get a little nostalgic at my age with what the Davis Cup used to be and where it is now. But if you could talk about that process, because I don't think, again, a lot of people quite understand what the Davis Cup and what a victory could mean for certain countries like Croatia the year that you profiled them. Well, look, the, for many years, I used to say to people, the Davis Cup is the best atmosphere in tennis. For me, the ultimate atmosphere was a home underdog against a big name away player when the home underdog was playing out of his skin 
and the crowd was going wild and the atmospheres that you used to get were just spine tingling. They really were. And I loved Davis Cup. Um, I'm afraid we've lost that now. Whether that old format was sustainable, I, my friends at the ITF tells me, tell me it wasn't and that you know, change had to come. But there's no question that we've lost that wonderful atmosphere. In those days, there was an, a Davis Cup yearbook at the end of each year. Um, it was basically a coffee table book with some wonderful photographs in, but a journalist was asked to write the words. And I was lucky to do four of those. They generally took a journalist, Chris Clary, until recently at the New York Times. He did it for a few years. Neil Harmon of the Times did it. I took over from Neil and I did four years, 2004 to 2007. So my first one was um, the only American, uh, sorry, the, my last one was the only American Davis Cup victory. The first one was the second of the Spanish victories where the Spaniards beat um, the US in the final, where I found myself right <laughs> up close with the King of Spain at uh, the side of the court. And the following year, 2005, everyone was saying, oh gosh, you know, what a dull final, Slovakia at home to Croatia. Well, who cares about that? But actually, as an exercise in nation building, it was just a phenomenal year because Slovakia and Croatia were two nations who hadn't existed as sovereign states until the early to mid 1990s. They came out of this sort of the redrawing of the map following the end of the Soviet era, the end of the Cold War, the um, falling of the Iron Curtain. And uh, Ivan Lubacic, who was the player of that year, he was very much a product of that. He was born in the Croatian part of Bosnia-Herzegovina. He was a refugee during the um, Yugoslav civil wars. He ended up spending a lot of his childhood in Italy, very nearly ended up playing Davis Cup for Italy and therefore became a national hero in Croatia as one of the ambassadors, a bit the way Djokovic has with Serbia. And it was just fascinating. And my dad actually was, um, came to Great Britain in 1938 as a refugee from Nazi Germany. His father was Jewish, his mother was uh, a Gentile. So I shared with Lubacic that sort of family history of displaced citizen as a result of the, the turbulence of 20th century history. So I had a really personal connection and Ivan and I get on really well to this day when I ask him for an interview, um, unless he's coaching Roger Federer, in which case he tends to <laughs> keep his capital, he will always give me that interview. And we had the most wonderful conversations because we were linked by that, that year, 2005, which was his best year as a player, Croatia's golden year in the Davis Cup. And um, yeah, a wonderful year for those nations from southeastern Europe to really make their name in the sporting uh, global theater. It's special stuff. And uh, Lubicic is just a great guy as well. I remember seeing him at Indian Wells coaching Federer and a fan yelled out for Lubicic amongst, amongst the Federer fans. And he just yelled back, no one really knows who I am anymore, which was a funny line in a, in a crowded space. But, you know, getting to the player that, that he, yeah, yeah. he ended up coaching Federer because he's able to put his ego to one side. Yeah. Speaking of that, though, I mean, you wrote two books on two of the greatest, you know, two of the three greatest in the men's modern game, for sure. Uh, you wrote the definitive biography of Roger Federer, which, as I mentioned, is an audio book now. Uh, Novak Djokovic and the rise of Serbia. Chris, you got to be right alongside two of the all-time greats in all of sports. What's something you learned that, you know, through that access about those two great established tennis players? Um, I mean, I learned a lot of stuff. For me, um, there's been about 
three interviews I've done throughout my career which really stand out. One was one with Ivan Gulagong many years ago. Um, uh, I did a, a five-minute interview with her for the BBC. And then we, when the microphone was off, we just chatted for 35, 40 minutes about the role of uh, Indigenous Australians in today's Australia. And it was one of those conversations I came my way thinking, oh, my goodness. And when I uh, did Djokovic, I set out thinking, well, whoever I interview, there's one person who is indispensable. And that was Yelena Gencic, the woman who taught him to play, the woman he refers to as his tennis mother. And I um, had a contact at the Serbian Tennis Federation. I said, can you get me an interview with Yelena Gencic? And uh, she said, I'll try. And she said, oh, can you make five o'clock today? And I said, yes. And she said, right, go to this cafe. It's her favorite cafe. Do not be late. She hates people being late. And I was there at 4.30 and I beat her there by about 30 seconds. And it was a most wonderful conversation. Within a few minutes, she was talking about, she said, oh, and I, and I played um, Novak a bit of Mahler. And I said, what, um, the Adagietto from the Fifth Symphony? And she said, you know it. And I said, well, yes, of course I know it. And she said, oh, and we connected over this sort of shared knowledge of music, and a bit of poetry, and she talked about Nikola Tesla. The, uh, we think of Tesla as electric car, but Nikola Tesla was the guy who invented alternating currents, the AC and ACDC. And, and it was clear that she taught Novak about so many aspects of life. And that interview, which was about two and a half hours in total, was one of the wonderful moments of my life. And that sort of changed me as a, as a person, or just added to the sort of my breadth as, as a citizen of the world. And I love that. And I've given a whole chapter in the book to, to Yelena Gencic. Plus, of course, she appears it, uh, at other parts too. And unbeknown to me, she was dying of liver cancer and she died 10 weeks later. And uh, I got the last, well, I, I, I met her again about four or five weeks later, but I got the last two interviews with her. And uh, I just wonder in retrospect whether she knew she was going and she just wanted to tell the story. And I'm just so pleased it was in the um, was in the book. The ironic thing is, and again, this is interesting in terms of working out who the greatest is. For me, the Djokovic book is a much better book than the Federer book. Federer, much as I love him as a tennis player, he's just a middle class boy from an affluent background mm. in Basel. His parents worked in the chemical industry in Basel. Djokovic was a boy from, he wasn't from poor background, but he was from modest uh, surroundings. No history of tennis. Um, it was a massive learning curve for the family, set against a background of real chaos. I yeah. mean, the Serbian economy at the time when he was a teenager was really chaotic. When, when NATO planes bombed Belgrade, he had to move his, practice every every day because they had to work on intelligence about you know what was likely to be bombed and what was probably going to be safe much better story and yet the federer book sells 10 to 1 better which tells mm -hmm. you something if someone's more popular their story will sell even if it's not as good a story as somebody who's less popular and that's the tragedy of djokovic he is less understood because he's not as popular, right. perhaps because he was the third man in a two-man show. People loved the Federer-Nadal rivalry, and Djokovic was a slight interloper in that respect and ended up achieving more than Federer and Djokovic. So, yeah. you know, interesting things. 
Yeah, certainly interesting. It's hard to follow the greatest one-two act in tennis history, but Novak's accomplished more and the motivation and the hunger and getting to, you know, interview his tennis mom before she passed and understand that backstory is very valuable. Well, Chris, I mean, now turning your attention to what you're doing now, and I've listened to a few of the episodes, the Tennis Worthy podcast presented by the International Tennis Hall of Fame. I love the the people there. Shout out to uh, Patrick Macro, Megan Urbis, their communications team. But, you know, talking to Courier, Esserver Gear, Pat Rafter, Ken Rosewall, what has it been like that process of having extended chats on the podcast with some of the all-time greats? I love it. I absolutely love it. And, you know, what is such a privilege is to be able to follow the answers. So many interviews these days, you get given maybe five minutes with someone or 10 minutes with someone, and you've got a certain number of questions you have to get through. Of course, I have a rough structure, and there are a few questions that I tend to ask on all those interviews. But by and large, I follow the answers. If someone says, oh, well, I, and I really learned a lot from that, and I say, well, what did you learn? How did that change you? I, I'm able to yeah, follow the answers to develop what they've said. And some fascinating things come out. For me, one of the biggest moments came towards the end of the first season of interviews when I interviewed John Newcomb. And I talked to him about, you know, beating Jimmy Connors in the um, 1975 Australian Open final. And I said, but, you know, you you beat Connors in four sets, but you had a 11-9 fifth set in the semi-final. You know, were you tired for that? And he told me the story about the semi-final. And he said, I was 5-2 down and I ended up winning 11-9. And I said, well, how did you do that? He said, I have no idea. I said, what do you mean you have no idea? He said, I have no memory between 2-5 down and winning 11-9. And he told that story. And I said to him, what do you mean, John, that you have no memory? He said, I don't know. I went somewhere. And I said, where did you go? And it was one of those moments where... I found myself with the best question was to say absolutely nothing and to let him pick up. And he had tears in his eyes as he was telling the story. And there's this alpha male, highly intelligent alpha male, who, you know, was one of the uh, fair dinkum Aussie blokes who was really tapping into his emotions about having to go to a part of his subconscious that, was so deep he didn't even remember it and that by the end of the match he was punch drunk now i don't know how i got that out of him <laughs> maybe he was just ready to tell that story but these long form interviews allow for that kind of thing to come out and for me that is the beauty of them and that's why some people may look at the interviews and say oh 45 minutes 50 minutes i'm not listening for that long it's worth it for, you know, if, if it's that long, it's because it's worth it because they say something or we develop something. And, you know, to me, this is, this is so much in modern life is distilled into, you know, short sound bites or small chunks or whatever. If you have time, if you're in your car on a long journey, if you've got to walk to the train station or whatever, listen to these kind of things, they're worth it. And that's what I love about these podcasts. It's not just about tennis players talking about tennis. It's about people talking about how they overcame difficulties, how they learned things about themselves. And I have to believe that whatever walk of life a listener inhabits, they can get something from these interviews, even if they don't really know that much about tennis. 
You said it perfectly. All these tennis players, all these tennis champions and these great matches have stories behind them. So getting the chance to, in your case, talk to the greats and let them expound upon it and maybe learn some things about players we think we know everything about in the public eye. It's, it's really special. Well, can we talk circle here, Mitch? You see, you asked me at the beginning about, you know, tennis and life. And in a way, you know, tennis is a microcosm. People can learn things about life from other disciplines, but there's plenty to learn about tennis, including digging deep. And, you know, Rafter told the story about how he was, um, you know, he was playing a Davis Cup tie. He was two sets to love down. And his captain, who happened to be John Newcomb, said, this is a war of attrition. You're going to have to dig deep. Rafter admitted afterwards he didn't know what war of attrition meant, but he won the match in five. So clearly he did know what it meant, even if he didn't recognize the word. That's another lovely little story about tennis imitating life. Certainly is. Well, Chris, this has been a blast. I got to end with uh, asking you what 2024 looks like for you, what you have lined up or what's on the schedule for uh, Chris Bowers here going forward. Um, I was in Australia, loved my trip to Australia. It was very, very long days, but uh, it's a privilege, especially as a North European, to be in T-shirts and shorts in January. Um I will be at Roland Garros. I will be at Wimbledon, although I have to still um, away for one day in the first week because my daughter is graduating from dance college. She's uh, doing a degree in contemporary dance and her graduation show is in the first week of Wimbledon. So there's some very bad planning by somebody on that front. <laughs> uh, I do hope that I can make it to Newport, Rhode Island for this year's International Tennis Hall of Fame induction, partly because it's the last year that the ATP will have a tournament at uh, Newport. Those wonderful grass courts really need to be on the uh, the full tour. And I'm very worried that this will be the last year for the time being that uh, Newport will host a tour level event. But the other thing is that a really good friend of mine, Richard Evans, who is another tennis historian, is being inducted into the Hall of Fame this year. Now, I've had many, many dinners with Richard, many of which included me saying to him, Richard, you've got to write your life story. You've got to write your life story. And for many years, he said, oh, no, no one's interested in my life. And eventually I got through to him and he wrote it. And it is the most amazing life, including covering two presidential elections in America as a foreign correspondent, covering a rebel cricket tour of South Africa, the one in which Nelson Mandela was released, went to Hanoi during the Vietnam War and ended up dating Margaret Thatcher's daughter when Margaret Thatcher was uh, oh. British Prime Minister. It's just a remarkable life. Oh, and, and he spent masses of time uh, working for and reporting on tennis. And for me, he's a remarkable individual who I am privileged to count as a friend. And he is being inducted into the Tennis Hall of Fame. So if I can get myself to Newport for that, that will be a great personal pleasure, regardless of what work I do. Well, yeah, that, that's a special one, too. And, and he's so deserving. This class is great. I, I think, you know, the final ATP tournament, especially, it's a reason to go out to Newport. So that's my shameless plug. Uh, and also maybe, I mean, Chris, I don't know, are you going to maybe play a little piano when you're there? Because I know you're good. Um, yeah, well, yeah, piano, violin. I, I play both. I mean, look, I've had an eclectic life. Maybe the reason I wasn't ever that good at anything is that I'm interested in so many different things. But yeah. look, there's ways of connecting with people, and I love it. I'm a citizen of the world. Yes, I have a British passport, but um, that's uh, convenient. I'm an international citizen, and that's why I'm so at home in the tennis world. 
Chris Bowers, it was a pleasure talking to you. He's written biographies on Novak Djokovic and Roger Federer, which is available in an audiobook form, and he hosts the Tennis Worthy podcast presented by the International Tennis Hall of Fame. Chris, thanks for joining Tennis Channel Insight, and it was a blast. My pleasure. And that will do it for this week's episode of Tennis Channel Insight. And once again, thank you to Mark Petchy and thank you to Chris Bowers for appearing as guests. This podcast continues to grow, continues to get better. And that is a testament to all the support we've got. So I thank every listener and audience member that there is. This podcast is available on all your podcast platforms, whether you listen on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, iHeart, or Google. If you search Tennis Channel Insight in, the podcast will pop right up. You can subscribe, leave a rating or review. And when you subscribe, I'm telling you, it's that simple. Every episode, each Thursday, when the podcast is released, will automatically show up, download it to your listening device. You don't have to do a thing, but just sit back, listen, and enjoy the show. We've got a great show planned next week. There's a lot of great guests coming up in the month of February. Soon we'll be in March. Indian Wells, Miami Open, the Sunshine Double will be here before you know it. And you never know what storylines might pop up. For Mark Petchy and Chris Bowers, my name is Mitch Michaels. This was Tennis Channel Inside In. I appreciate you for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.